Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome, my name's Jane Baylor and thank you for checking out this episode of the Smart Connector podcast with myself and US-based Rob Eastman, who is the Tattooed Life Coach, an entrepreneur, mental health advocate, founder of Eastman Family Recovery Foundation, wrestling coach, fitness trainer, and host of the incredible Stand and Fight podcast. This was a really powerful and moving interview for me, even though Rob's history, background, and birthplace is so different to mine. We have the traumatic experience of pain of addiction in common, in his case personally and in my case in my family of origin. We talk about why entrepreneurs are so vulnerable to mental health challenges and addiction and about Rob's own journey and his valuable and exciting work with troubled youth in his native Utah. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast. I have the most exciting guest for you today, all the way from the US. It's Rob Eastman. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, mental health and addiction is a topic that's very, very close to my own heart. And when I came across your podcast, I thought this is really fantastic. I absolutely have to have you on the show because it's such an important topic right now. Of course, we're in the middle of the pandemic and a lot of people are struggling, but also entrepreneurs are very prone to mental health issues, aren't they, Rob? Why do you think that is? I think originally when people break off from, you go to school, you're told you need to go to college, you're told you need to go all these things. And when you have that entrepreneur mindset, you kind of leave the pack and which leads you feeling alone a lot. And I know for me, um, constantly being told by my teachers or peers that I needed this education and I couldn't move forward without it really left me feeling alone. So I feel, I don't know how others feel in that way, but getting told no as many times as we do as we're starting businesses or coming up with ideas. And I think all of those things, unless you're born with this amazingly strong, confident sense of self, uh, we're going to run into those things. And then also being around other business owners or networking, there's people out drinking, there's parties, there's all these different things. And uh, a lot of the time when you're a young entrepreneur, you want to, you want to be like these people or you need, you feel like you need to act a certain way in order for them to, to bring you into their, to their group. So there's a, there's a lot of different things. And I've been an entrepreneur since 19 years old. I'm now 40. Three, I was born into a family. My father was an entrepreneur. So that's kind of all I've known. But we can get into this later. But I'm actually going through something right now, starting another company where if I didn't know all of the things I know now, I would have quit a year ago. Politics and red tape and and all of these these barriers in my way of getting to to something. I'm I'm in the works of opening a mental health facility. And with everybody struggling, you think that society would be more open about getting these things done. And it's just been a, it's been a nightmare 
putting time and effort and money that you'll never see back into these things and you're laying there in bed. Luckily, I'm, I'm past the point of worrying about paying my bills, but early in my entrepreneurial life, you know, I was rubbing two pennies together the day before rents due in hopes that something magical would happen overnight, you know? So there's a, there's a lot of different things that can play into this and, you know, upbringing culture. So I'm excited to talk more about this. Mm. So you, Rob, you have an incredible story and I know that our listeners would love to hear it. So can we start there, Rob? Tell us more about your childhood, how you got to be from where you were then to where you are now, why you have this passion for mental health and recovery from addiction. I know you've got a great story, so I'd love you to share it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if, if anybody knows, I, I'm born and raised in Utah, which is kind of the the mountain range just outside of California, a little bit by Vegas. We're known for the Mormons. The, I think a lot of people know that religion. So the culture here is uh, you put on a face of perfection and church is more of a place for showing off than it was for helping the sick. I felt as a kid, I got bullied a lot here in America. There's not many redheads and I'm one of them. So I got bullied a lot on the playground and from a young age, you either learn the social skills or you learn how to be what everybody else wants you to be. I just remember dreading going to school every day and knowing that I was going to be bullied. And again, I was born and raised in the LDS religion, Mormon, and we were baptized at the age of eight. And the way they, the way it made sense in my little eight-year-old mind was, when I get baptized, that my life, the adults around me are telling me my life's going to be better. It's, you know, and in my mind, it was like I'm going to be popular. I'm going to be good at math. I couldn't sit still in school. I was diagnosed ADHD, like kindergarten, I think. And when I went back to school after being baptized, nothing had changed, and that was really the first time I started waging a war with God. And with the people around me that I thought were supposed to love me, but everything that they said didn't come true. Obviously, I didn't have a full understanding of what that meant then. But so by the third grade, I had started having suicidal thoughts. And uh, from that point, I, I didn't know. Obviously, back in the 80s and, and, and early 90s, we didn't have as much TV and as we do now or access to that. So I didn't know you could actually kill yourself. I just know that I didn't want to be here anymore. And that went on and through, through elementary school, I just got really good at being whatever you wanted me to be. I call it wearing masks. So I would do whatever the bully wanted me to do so that he wouldn't beat me up or call me names anymore. And I'd be friends with this group and that group. And I got really good at, at faking who I was, which left me really alone when I went home at night, that self-hatred and, and, uh, that feeling of, of just leaving and never coming back grew. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't working on dealing with my fears and anxieties. I was giving into them. And I think most parents, they see their kids struggling and they want to take the struggle away. And my mom loved me and, and my dad loved me and I had a great family, but they, they protected me rather than prepared me. That I think is the most, the biggest thing that I can look at in my life and now dealing with all the people I deal with now is the overprotection and under prepared or under prepared. 
And kids these days, like bullying's not going away. Phones, they're not going away. So parents are wanting to take things away and it really doesn't do anything. They need to teach, teach their kids how to deal with it, how to deal with their emotions, how to express their emotions, how to deal with these phones. They're like a loaded gun. You know, there's the, the mental health rate is so poor with youth. And I, I don't know how it is in, in England, but here, anxiety, depression, suicide attempts and suicide is so high among youth that it's sad. And as I went through, I ended up finding marijuana for the first time as a sophomore in high school, which is about 15 years old. And all the pain and anxiety went away. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I should have done the whole time. And the problem with that is you smoke it once and you feel better, but then you got to smoke more and more and more and more until eventually the weed doesn't even cover up that emotional pain. Then I added alcohol, then I added pills, and you can fast forward about a decade of bad mental health and trying to cover up my emotional pains with, with medications. You know, I ended up with a gun in my mouth and, and ready to end my life. There was a lot of overdoses through that time. And, you know, I was a very high level soccer player. I actually spent my senior year in high school over in England playing soccer or football. And that was my way out. And, and I was getting ready to try out for a couple teams. And I came back to America for a minute and got back with some wrong people. And we ended up getting in a altercation with a police officer, which ended my career and ultimately had me going from going to college on a scholarship or playing soccer over in the UK to facing jail or prison. And if I can paint a picture of where I live, it's uh, high end, it's low crime, it's everybody has what they need. So to have that at 18 years old be looking at going to prison, you know, I'd be the first from my town to ever be dealing with that. So I was sent to, we made a deal with the courts that if I went, with a school and studied abroad and did well in my classes that, that, uh, that they would drop the charges. So I was sent to um, Israel with BYU, which is a Mormon, a big Mormon university over here. And I spent six months over in Israel and Egypt and Jordan. And that's really where the first time that I'd ever been surrounded myself with good people who had hopes and dreams. It's like the people you surround yourself with, when you're struggling and they're struggling, it's like you wake up and you survive the day. And these people were waking up and charging the day. They had things that they wanted to work towards and, and they were putting their best foot forward and they had goals. And, and I just hadn't surrounded myself with those people going through, through my schooling as a youngster. So that was really the first time that I, that my eyes were open, that I could surround myself with people who were working really hard and doing great things. And I could vibe off of their good energy. So I did great. I ended up, you know, I, I got sober and, and I was sober for six months and, and a religion, my religion, they go, they go, when you turn 19, you go serve on a mission for two years. 
And I was planning on doing all of that. And we were over in Egypt. We were just like one last excursion. We we're going to go see the pyramids and the Sphinx and some of the temples. And, and uh, they gave us a couple of rules. They said, don't go out after dark and, and do not climb the pyramids. And those two things sounded pretty amazing to me. And so I uh, talked a couple other guys into to setting up that little adventure. And we went out and broke those rules. And during that adventure, we ended up getting held up for money, getting in an argument with a guy trying to rob us. And ended up getting chased through Cairo and saved by the guards out in front of our American hotel. And so I was on probation. And so when the courts heard about it, I violated probation. So I'm sitting in Cairo and and uh, I had like three days left and I would have been off. And in my mind, we weren't, we weren't causing any harm. We were just going to go climb some pyramids and it didn't quite pan out that way. So I spent the next few months wandering through my dad called me and said hey i put some money on a card going to europe and i'll call you when i figure something out and so i was basically a fugitive and not a bad guy but i had violated in the u.s and he didn't want me to come home he wanted to figure things out first so i wandered through europe for about a month and a half before i got the phone call that it was okay to come home but in that time having left all of those good people that I talked about, the kids that had hopes and dreams and that were studying hard and working on businesses. When I was left by myself alone in Europe at 18, scared and living in that fear and that mental health came back real quick. I was back on drugs and alcohol and basically threw away those six months of preparation and finally got the phone call and, and came home. They made a deal where I just had to do some community service and and looking back at all of that stuff, it was like, I just kept making excuses for my mental health. You know, I, I either took the badge, like the, the doctor says I'm depressed, so I must be depressed. You know, I needed a pill. I didn't look at the life skills that I could have used. I didn't look at understanding that some of my decision making or the structure in my day, getting up on time, making my bed, you know, all these little things make such a big difference. So I get home. And my father owned car dealerships. We owned Jeep and Dodge and Chrysler and Plymouth and Suzuki. And, and so I started working in, in, our, in our family business and I couldn't kick the drugs. And I was very bipolar. I would be up for a couple of weeks and then I'd be in the dumps. Fetal position, anxiety. I couldn't get out of bed. The only person I could see was my mom. And this is at like 27 years old. And I felt pretty helpless. And many a night spent with a gun in my mouth, um, really wanting to end my life. And uh, eventually got into becoming an IV drug user, shooting cocaine and heroin. And I ended up overdosing. I, By the time the police got there, they had to work on jumpstarting my heart again for about 20 minutes. And they rushed me to the hospital, found that I had a brain hemorrhage from hitting my head. And they rushed me to another hospital where I flatlined three more times, spent about 10 days in a coma. And uh, you'd think that that would get me back on track after all those things happening. But when I woke up, all I could think about was using. And I don't know if people understand how strong 
that addiction can be, you know, I came from a good family. I came from a good area. I came from all these things, but it was the mental health. I just didn't put focus on. We didn't know enough about it back then to, to deal with it. And, uh, so the life skills and, and, and understanding me and being the best me I could be was, was the only way out of it. So the first time I was ever introduced to rehab, I went, and during all of this time, I've, I've owned a concrete company. I've owned a motorcycle shop. I owned a Honda motorcycle company to show you how sick I was. I, I, my family, my dad and my brother-in-law and myself bought a motorcycle company. We, we ran it for about three years and ended up selling to a bigger company. And I had a little bit of money that I got from the sell and I was at the bar with some friends on a Friday and I was a blackout drinker. I would drink and wake up a few days later not knowing exactly what had happened. And this particular weekend, I came outside of my house on a, it was like we went to the bar on Friday. That's really all I remember. I came outside on a Sunday and there was a big, huge concrete trailer parked in my driveway. And asking my friends, I'm like, who parked their trailer here? And they proceeded to tell me that on Saturday after the bar, when we when we came out of the bar on Friday night, we kept partying, and I went and I bought a concrete company in a blackout on Saturday. So my mind was always going, and I always had the entrepreneurial spirit, but my addiction was right there with it. So I went. I'd never touched a trial, never played with concrete a day in my life. And I went, took the trailer back to the company and they're like, sorry, final sale. So my bank account was empty. I had this new concrete company that I started from ground zero and it forced me to level up and go out and figure the thing out. And I spent about 10 years doing concrete. And towards the end of that, I did really well. I was making about $35,000 a month. I'm in my 20s and I have the house, I have the BMW, I have the big truck, I have the beautiful girlfriend. You know, I had all the worldly things and I was still just so empty inside. After I had that overdose, I went I went to rehab and and I came out and that was the first time I'd ever sat around in a room full of people that had been through the same things that I had been through, but they also had a solution. Like a lot of people can talk about things, but there's usually no solution at the end of it. And when I have structure, I do really well. So in that setting, I went in and, and, and did really well and came out. I got married, um, had a daughter, and I was playing soccer again. And I ended up uh, hurting my knee in one of the matches. And I blew my ACL. And I'd been clean for about two years at this point. And my relationship with people had changed. My relationship with myself had changed. I had mended things. I had built new bridges that I had burned. The one thing that I didn't touch base with was my relationship with pain. I had spent so many years covering my emotional, spiritual, physical pain with substance that after I got out of rehab, life was great. And the problem with that is I didn't get tested until this pain. I went into surgery. I came out 
and I was doing good, but then the nerve block wore off and just instantly, even after two years of not touching a drug, that, that intense pain triggered that response. And I had my drug dealer at my house within an hour. And, uh, I have a new baby daughter. I just built a half a million dollar home. I've got a new wife. And now I also have so much shame that I just let everybody down that now I'm a liar again. I had worked so hard to pull myself out of that. And here I am. I've got this little baby girl, beautiful wife, and that mental health kicking back in. My idea was that I finally, my daughter deserved better. And that meant me finally killing myself. So we were arguing quite a bit. I, you, you've lived with an addict, so you understand that we're pretty uh, abrasive. So to say the least, we don't mean to be, but that's just who we are. If you get in the way of our, of our addiction, you're, you're going to lose. And it can be a battlefield. And, and it just came down to the point where I was letting everybody down. And I knew that, that it was finally time for me to end my life. My wife had left at this point, and the only time I could see my daughter was if my parents were there. And the only time my parents would let me back in their house, because when we got divorced, I was forced to go live in my parents' basement again because I couldn't keep my job. I couldn't run my company. I was too I was too deep in my addiction. And I was trying to overdose, and I kept waking up. Because back when I was in ninth grade, I was about 15 years old. I had a gun at a party and I ended up getting in trouble. And my dad, he came and he got the gun from me and he was super upset and uh, he smashed it up. And I didn't grow up with grandparents. I didn't even know what they were. And in that day, he proceeded to tell me why I didn't have grandparents. And he let me know that his mother had committed suicide and that his dad had driven his truck off of a bridge. Um and so he said, I don't know what would happen if you died. If you died, I'd probably kill myself. So from that ninth grade, that fifth year 15, I didn't want to hurt anybody else. I loved my dad. So rather than dealing with my issues, I just got really good at stuffing them. So as an adult, I didn't want to I, – I, every time I thought about killing myself, that, that thought came back into my mind. And I'm like, okay, well, if I accidentally overdose – then he won't think it was a suicide. And it got to the point where one morning he came and sat by me and handed me a piece of paper in his basement. And he said, read it. And he had sat up the night before and wrote my obituary. And he said, I know you're going to die, but you're not going to do it in my basement. You need to get out. So that was the, that was really the turning point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to end my life. So I set up the deal where I could see my daughter, which would get me back in their house, which would allow me to go and steal a gun. And uh, I went up in the mountains and I put the gun in my mouth and uh, I had a God moment. I said a prayer and said something like, you know, I don't know anything about a still small voice. I'm going to need something a little bit louder than that. And if I open my eyes without a sign, I'm pulling this trigger. And I went to open my eyes and a firework display went off above these houses right in front of my face. And shortly after that, I heard a voice and it said, is that loud enough? And at that point, I didn't believe in God. I was doing it out of spite because my mother's a God-believing person. I'd never had any, any of my prayers answered. And in that moment, it was so loud and clear that I couldn't deny what I had just heard. I didn't know if it was out loud or if it was in my head or what had just happened. But I knew that I needed to make a change. And that is my sobriety date. 
is uh, September 1st, 2009. And uh, ever since that point, I have put in 10 years of self-study on psychology, on entrepreneurship, on working with youth mental health. I am now the owner of a successful lifestyles gym where we use fitness and nutrition to help mental health. I have a huge youth program. I'm a wrestling coach at a high school and a junior high. I started a nonprofit that works with families in crisis, dealing with mental health, suicide, bullying. I speak to about 10,000 youth teachers and administrators a year. So for me, all of those things that once made me feel less than, feel judged, felt like a failure, like a loser, are now my sharpest tools. And I feel like as an entrepreneur, you're going to, if you're not learning from every no and pushing past every yes, then you're kind of wasting your time. I find that my foundation is so strong because my failures were so big that I'm unwavering when it comes down to how to move forward with mental health, how to make a change in my own community. I'm covered in tattoos, not because I went to prison, but because my dad told me that I should dress for the job I wanted. And I remember when I would go to a therapist or whatever, I always wondered they were dressed up nice. They looked like they had it all together. They were taking notes and it always made me feel so uncomfortable. And I felt like the ones that I truly wanted to reach would open up a lot quicker if I looked like them. And not saying people with tattoos are bad, but you get what I'm saying. I can sit with a youth for 10 minutes and they will tell me more than they've told their therapist in two years. Um, I don't know if it's if I was blessed with the gift, but it, it's allowed me to change a lot of minds. I've had the opportunity to work with the highest levels of our Senate and politicians in my state to change the way that police officers deal with mental health, that fire departments, that court systems, how we deal with them in schools. Because you, as you know, anytime you're feeling down or whatever, it, it, it's lonely. We think we're all alone. We don't think that anybody understands. And we sure as heck don't want to be a burden. No. And it's, and it's actually the opposite where I think a majority of the world struggles. Some people just wear a better mask. Yeah, I think you're right. That's just such a powerful story that you have, Rob, and such an incredible message. And you're doing such wonderful things, really, to reverse that legacy of suffering that that was in your family and, and bring a more positive and inspiring message to the world. So the first thing I wanted to say is that is just what you're doing is incredible. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really humbled and inspired, first of all, by your story. But, you know, secondly, it has a lot of personal resonance for me. We were chatting a little bit beforehand and I was saying that I grew up in a family of addiction. My brother died of alcoholism very, very sadly. I married a recovering addict who was a very, very serious addict along the lines of, you know, what you described as well. And he was in recovery. So I've been around all of this. And I think the thing about addiction is that there's still a lot of judgment, isn't there, towards addicts from people that don't understand the illness? Absolutely. 
And that's the biggest thing is the people who don't understand it have the biggest opinions, which is very harmful. The people that say, oh, don't be depressed, just be happy. Things like that are, are very hard for somebody to take that's literally thinking about suicide daily or that literally can't get out of bed because it's such a physical down. So that's that's really my true focus is to to take that uncomfortable conversation and make it comfortable and and kind of bring it to the forefront and they're just catching on now. I don't know how they are in in your country, but it's it's a really big deal right now and this pandemic has brought it to the forefront. Just since COVID, I've been to four funerals of boys under the age of 19 from suicide. Mm-hmm. When things like that happen, I don't care who you are. If you haven't been to a funeral of a teen who took their own life, it will change your mind on mental health. They look like they have it all together from the outside. They're, they weren't homeless. They weren't on drugs. They weren't on. It's those expectations of society, the inability to express their emotions inside of their family unit. And that family unit might be schools and teachers and, you know, all these different things. But it just comes back to that point where we know we never know what people are going through. No, that's true. As you said, everybody wears a mask and some people wear a better mask than others because a lot of that comes from our training, doesn't it? And uh, as you Absolutely. said, our origin and our society and, and so on. It's very, very powerful and very moving, your story and, and, and what you're doing now. And I think particularly the youth mental health, which is I, I have an 18-year-old my, myself. I actually have three daughters, but... Uh, she tells me that many of her friends are really struggling as well. And of course, when people are struggling, they're not at their best and they're often very difficult to be around. That's part of the of the dilemma that people without really understanding mental health and really addiction is just a consequence of the pain that's caused by mental health issues, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If people don't understand that, what they see is the perhaps the antisocial behavior, and then they judge. And to bring awareness to this issue, as you're doing, and actually bring it out into the light and say, look, these people, they they might be behaving really badly. They might be very, very selfish. I mean, my brother was absolutely horrendous. He was He was terrible to be around most of the time. But that was, I knew that was just because he was in pain and he was drinking himself to death. And that yeah. was just a horrible, horrible place to be. So no wonder he was awful. But I think that is the dilemma for people. And it's just not easy, is it? No. And I find, especially in the entrepreneur world, the creativity, the greatness, it, it all, there's a lot of bipolar. There's a lot of... Uh, ups and downs and yeah. and some of them feel like they're not as creative when they're medicated so they go unmedicated feeling that but sometimes it gets too deep and that's when addiction suicide self-harm kicks in so having a a good core group of people mentors both male and female and in different areas of your life is so important especially for entrepreneurship because it encompasses everything. You don't get to show up on Monday and the work's there. You got to create it. You got to be it. You got to sell it. You got to do it. You got to prepare it. And uh, we wear so many hats that others don't understand. No, that's right. And just to go back to what you were saying at the beginning, 
that can cause us to feel very isolated and very alone. And what do we do when we feel isolated and alone? Well, you know, we reach for a drink or we medicate or because it's a feeling of loneliness. That is the most harmful thing of all. I, I think connection is what we all crave, isn't it? It is. It truly is. And a true connection. I think with all the social media and we, we ask, like I, I posted a, a video of me rock climbing yesterday and I received like almost 700 likes. If I were to need a ride and my car was broke down, maybe one of those 600 likes are going to come save me. You know, mm. I, it makes you feel great and people are seeing you. But at the end of the day, they're not going to keep you warm. They're not going to be there on a bad day and that we need to disconnect to reconnect. And it's important to find those even, you know, I, I tell the kids all the time, it's it's better to have four quarters than a hundred pennies <laughs> because having one or two quality friends or mentors can change your life forever. Yeah. And I think we all need people who we can be absolutely 100% ourselves with and who will listen to us unconditionally and support us and not just jump in and talk about themselves. That is something that I learned a few years back when I was really struggling myself. And it's just so important, isn't it? As you said, we need it as much as food and water. Absolutely. And how, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, I, <laughs> I'm i in my 50s, Rob. I'm not going to tell you the exact figure if you don't mind. All right. So, uh, well, that same, I think, I imagine it's the same way we were brought up is women had a job, men had a job, men were to keep quiet, women were to keep to themselves. And, and we didn't, we weren't taught about vulnerability, and that it was okay to have emotions, we needed to, to work through it, we needed to open up. And, and we've passed that down to our kids, you know, there's some people that have been enlightened and, and changed that. But I know here, where I live, my dad never really showed emotion. And I know he struggled now knowing what I know, I know he struggled with depression and things like that, but you never would have known. And I think kids see a, a level of perfection or entrepreneurs see the guy that they want to be like, and all they see is the great. They don't see all the terrible things that they had to go through to get there. You see a house, but you don't see that they can't afford it. You know, all these different things. There's just so much into being the best, being your best self. And yes. truly chasing the carrot that you want, not what you think your family wants for you or anything else, and having something driven by passion. Like if yeah. I was homeless, I would still be life coaching people on how to be healthy. <laughs> like because I'm I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And the weird thing about that is the more the less I cared about the money side, the more it came. Mm. You know, I run a, a six figure uh, coaching programs and, and I love what I do. I, I, I look forward to Mondays. I, and it, and it just came from being the best me, you know, stepping out of what I thought my family wanted for me and truly seeing what my path was, how I could help my community and this world better. We all have a gift yes, and we need to share that. And have you read the book, uh, Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty? Oh, boy. I love it. So he calls it Dharma. And it's all the little things that you're great at. And just in the middle of those all mixed together is your Dharma. How can you be a garbage man and you hate your job, but how can you utilize your people skills to make that job better? And he talks about by 
by saying hello and cheering up the people who you're picking up their garbage. Like you don't have to hate your job. You can still be you inside of your job. And I was looking at that going, man, that, that makes so much sense because so people wake up hate or, or Sunday comes and they start getting anxiety because they have to go to work on Monday because they hate it. And that is a good way to kill your mental health as well. So I think it's truly finding what makes you happy or finding a way to use that inside of what makes you money as well is a uh, super important. I think it really is because as an entrepreneur, we're always going to have difficult times, aren't we? And people that's, that think that it's just a bed of roses, well, all I can <laughs> say, they have not actually been in, in those shoes, you know, yeah. because more like a bed of needles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's always going to be ups and downs and challenges and setbacks, and it's just all part of the journey. And the thing that I've, I've noticed repeatedly is that if people don't really have a passion for what they do, if they don't really care, when those setbacks happen, they're far more likely to give up instead of push on. So you're, I'm absolutely with you on that. I think you've got to have purpose and you've got to have passion. And, you know, th those things are really at the heart of not just a successful business, but also good mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. I, so I spent 2017, I spent a month taking a group of cancer survivors and doctors and some donors to Mount Everest Base Camp oh. and had the opportunity to spend some time with the Buddhist monks and understanding their philosophies and their lifestyles. And then when I saw that book, read, think like a monk, it is, I, I don't read. I don't I listen to books. I, I was never a, a big school kid. I had troubles in school, but I, I actually read this book and there's probably more stuff highlighted than not. It was just mind blowing. It, he just has a way to simplify all the things we we know but we can't really put it into words he just it's amazing and i highly recommend that for for anybody entrepreneur understanding yourself so that you can move forward better in business yeah yeah so let, let's just talk about the uk versus the us rob because i know that you've alluded to it a few times and my sister she used to live in california now she lives in colorado oh, so well, i'm yeah, I've been over to the to the US a lot. Now, do you think that it's it's a very unequal society, isn't it? And I'm not saying that the UK isn't because, you know, this is just the way that the Western world is going, that there are, you know, haves and haves not. But but do you think that that is partly behind this epidemic of, you know, mental mental health? Is it just the the stress that a lot of people are under by being in a privileged country where there is obviously huge wealth all around and they are struggling. Do you, do you think that that's a factor? Yeah. I feel like the kids I work with that come from nothing have far greater street smarts and coping skills than those that come from wealth. But it's on both sides. We're Especially in my state, we call it keeping up with the Joneses. And there's a lot of people living on credit and that's a problem. They'll buy a million dollar home and these nice cars and all this stuff. And they make a hundred thousand a year and they will go to the depths of hell to keep that fake look on, to fit in, to be in the click, to whatever. And then you got mom taking Xanax at two o'clock in the afternoon because she hates her life. <laughs> 
you know, and dad's staying at work all day so he doesn't have to come home. And it, it is, it, there's, we have, we have way too much. And a perfect example of that is one thing I do when I leave the country is I buy soccer balls because that's like the international language of love. <laughs> I can, I can not know the language and pump up a soccer ball and have a family within minutes. So when I was in Nepal, we're clear up in the Himalayas. I'm up probably 14 or 15,000 feet above sea level. And I pumped up a soccer ball in this little village and these little kids came up and they had spent their whole day following a yak, which is like half cow, half buffalo. They follow around through the mountains and pick up their poo and that's their job for the day. And I'm like, okay. So we start playing soccer and at the end of it, I gave them the soccer ball and I gave them a pump and they were so excited, but the village people came down and they knew everybody and they were open and we were talking and then I come home and we've got these teenagers that have thousand dollar iPhones that have the nicest clothes that have nice cars and they're so sad and I just blows my mind that we're so caught up in things and we expect other people to fill our own cup that we're not learning how that, that it's our responsibility to love ourselves and to fill our cup the love coming from everybody else should be overflow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. And that is the big time culture here in in the U.S. You're either better than or worse than. Egos on both sides of that. And then we have the the culture war and the presidency. And I mean, it's been it's been a wild couple of years here in the U.S. Oh yeah, it has. I I know, I know. My sister, um, obviously, she's brought three children up in Palo Alto, actually. So okay. um, obviously, West Coast. She always used to say that she used to get frustrated with the education system over there because, I mean, obviously, we grew up in a in a different time, but we both grew up in the UK where praise was faint. Let's just say, you know, expectations were high. You know, you know that you have to try and that nobody's going to do it for you. Absolutely. And she, that, uh, that in the US, what used to frustrate her, and I do think we, we are all very, very affected by global culture now. As she used to say schools have this focus on, on self-esteem for, with children and that the way that they interpreted it, it would be they would praise all the time. They would praise and not criticize. So that that's fine. But what you were talking about in terms of actually uh, developing children to prepare them for our future, it's it's not just about praise, is it? Oh, absolutely not. It's it's both sides. They need to know that it's that they did great, but like we call it participation medals here in the U.S. Yeah. You've got six soccer teams playing in a tournament, and here in the U.S., all six teams get medals. Our little kids, they don't keep score because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And in school, you can do no wrong. There's so much red tape that the really the parenting is in charge and the kids get, get away with murder. And it's just, it's a sad culture. You know, I was actually, my competition soccer team, my coach played professionally for Manchester City. He called games over there. And so he comes to Utah from Manchester. And you can imagine 
the the way he talks compared to the way we talked. Yeah. Swear words and everything. We're 10 years old and he's treating us like professional athletes, just calling F bombing us and all this. Like we, we did had no clue. We were terrified, but <laughs> having had that experience is like, I'd score a goal and he'd be like, yeah, get another one. Not good job. He'd like, you need five more. And now I look back at that and I, I praise him for, you know, he, he drove me to be the best me possible on that field. Mm. And when we allow people to sit in pity parties, to feel sorry for themselves and to, to pat them on the back and be like, Oh you're, yeah, you're okay. Then that they're learning that they're going to get attention that way. Yeah, d definitely. And I, I see, I see parents, they do have a tendency to wrap children in cotton wool a lot over here as well. And uh, it's always difficult as a parent, isn't it, to get it right. And, and, you know, we can't do everything because we also are bringing children up in a certain culture. And as you said, they, have, they all have the iPhones, you know, they all have the access to all their peers. And, you know, that is going to be a strong influence as well. But as entrepreneurs, I do think we have to bring our children up to understand that you know, the, the world is not going to be delivered to them on a plate, that they do have to make it happen and they have to step up and take responsibility for their lives. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a daughter dad. I have an 11-year-old daughter and, and as much as I'd like to be the scary dad with the, with the gun polished and scare the boyfriends and, you know, whatever, I can't protect her all the time. No. We've spent the last three to five years she trains boxing at my gym. She trains jujitsu. She, I want her to have understand what love and success means to her. I don't want any man or woman ever telling her her worth. Yes. I want her to be confident. I want her to be able to be without a man so that one day she can have one. And I feel without that preparation, without some real life, like we go do some wild camp, like hikes that are gnarly. I teach her how to rock climb. I want to put her in those fear moments so that she can navigate them when it really hits in real life. You know, when she's not attached to a rope, when she, when you can't tap out on the mat, when somebody's trying, you know, a boy is trying to rape you at a party, you know, there's going to be those occasions. And, and unfortunately the culture of males is getting worse. They're not being taught respect. They're seeing things on TV. There's no accountability. I don't want to blanket statement that, but in general, rape on dates and all sexual harassment, all these things, they're, they're, they're rising. And yes, either yes. I can sit in fear or I can train my daughter to be a little warrior. And I yes. feel like as long as she, she understands herself, her capabilities and is more self-aware of herself and her surroundings, then I did my job. Yeah. And that goes with business, with money. You know, what is a dollar worth? What is a pound worth? What is, how do you earn that? You know, you might want a BMW, you might want a Mercedes, but you're going to have to work for eight years to buy that. So you might want to start looking at a Honda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just being real with them. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really incredible that you've managed to turn your life around and be such a wonderful inspiration to so many people, Rob, and really get the word out through your podcast as well about mental health and addiction and all of those 
issues that is going to help so many people. So I just wanted to wrap up today, Rob, because some people that will be listening into the podcast, they will be struggling with mental health, uh, depression, addiction issues. That's why they will be listening in. So I'd, I'd love to just have a leave them with a message from you. So what would you say to those people, anybody that's struggling right now? Wow, that's a very good one. I, I know how dark it feels in that moment and how alone you feel. And where I was with a gun in my mouth 11 years ago, homeless, to where I am now, whether you're religious and you understand the devil, the adversary, negative energy, dark energy, it wants to keep you stuck. And I promise you, reach out. You can reach out to me reach out to a loved one or people who can actually get you the help because there's a huge light at the end of the tunnel and uh, I don't even need to know you and I love you. So please stick around, reach out, you're worth it. And I know how you feel. Oh, that's so powerful. That's so powerful. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. What yeah, I really thing. appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's great to, to talk to you and uh, see you again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand. I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.